The biblical prescription for markets and business is very simple. It's nonviolence, it's the enforcement of property rights, and it's the enforcement of contracts. Now these three principles are, of course, derived directly from three of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder, it's violence. You shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness. And not only are these uh, from the Ten Commandments, but they're from the second table of the Ten Commandments, which we often call the kingly duty of man, laws that primarily relate to man's relationship to other men, people, and society. Distinguished, that is, from the first table of the law, we call it the priestly law, and that delineates man's duty primarily in relationship to God. And so Jesus said that all of the law is summed up in the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, etc., your priestly duty, and love your neighbor as yourself, the civil duty or kingly duty, Matthew 22. So in, br in brief, a biblical civil society is one in which people are legally free to engage in business and commerce in any way that does not aggress upon their neighbor's person or property that is their life, liberty, or estate. And conversely, this means that individuals have a fundamental right to be free from coercion by others in these same areas. Now, these are simply the basics of God's law. Now, the general right to freedom from coercion forbids state coercion as well, excepting, of course, punishment for crime, which is civil government's proper duty. The government should not be in the business of coercing markets, supporting some businesses or all businesses even through subsidies or taxations or uh, protections, price controls, various things like that, including loopholes and exceptions that may exist. Civil government simply bears the sword, as Scripture says, because it's the servant of God as an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, Romans 13 and 4. It's thus an agency for the use of force to punish crime. And crime is simply defined primarily as certain incarnate infractions of those very three commandments we just mentioned already. And by the way, punishments specifically as revealed in Scripture for punishable offenses. Civil government should be involved only in the endeavor of punishing crime and not in the promotion of favored businesses or corporations or in the regulation of markets, things of that nature. Individuals and businesses alike have a fundamental right to be free from the coercion of the state in all legitimate business and market matters. The moment the state engages in manipulating the markets, it infuses a moral evil into society. Now this almost always produces negative practical results as well. And these can be seen as God's judgment on society which departs from His law. Now practical results, of course, are not the main reason to keep the markets free, which would merely be an argument for pragmatism. Uh, the main reason is because God has created man free and commanded him to be free. That is, to own property, to engage in production and exchange, to reap the fruits and rewards of those efforts, or should it be the case, to bear the consequences of those efforts. Individual responsibility goes both ways. No one else has a legal right to the fruit of your labor, and you have no legal right to anyone else's, and no one else has a legal obligation to subsidize your failures or your shortcomings. Legally speaking, free markets is the biblical view of markets. Now this means, further, that no level of civil government should be able to tell you whom you can or can't hire, how you must compensate them, 
what benefits you should provide them, to whom you must provide goods or services, where you may or may not build or operate, or anything of that nature. Nor should the civil government be allowed to use public funds to enter into the markets, either directly through ownership and operation, or indirectly through planning and contracts. And this includes all construction, engineering, architecture, utilities, inspection services, legal services, financial services, and of course, education. The moment the government enters markets uh, with public money, with regulation, the markets become distorted at that point and certainly can no longer be called free. Instead, we have to admit at that point that those markets are rigged markets. Now we should back up a step at this point. In truth, the moment the government appropriates funds via taxation, by whatever name it calls that, the fundamental distortion has already been committed in the market. This takes money from uh, the economy in one area to be used in another area as determined by force. And this has some negative effects as well. Uh, first, it reduces freedom in that money which is taken through government coercion uh, would otherwise have been used freely by the individual or corporation. The individual now has to, uh, uh, has no say or very little say over how that money will be spent. Further, the individual also loses any interest he or she would have otherwise earned should they have chosen to invest that money. And also the reduction of liberty has an attendant increase in coercion. Not only is a central agency now forcing you to spend money in ways you don't determine and with which you may not agree, but the whole process can only begin when the government takes your money to begin with. Okay? This taking is in itself a form of violence. Worse yet, it sets a precedent in society for how any agenda or project may in fact succeed, and that is through the initial and sustained violence committed by government agents. Secondly, this practice feeds and breeds a class of opportunists who rely heavily on government grants and uh, contracts for their market livelihood. On one level, it, it leads to the rise of uh, a class uh, which otherwise would not have existed, or at least wouldn't have had many market opportunities had not the government provided them through the coercive means to begin with. And this means a class of businesses which will, which will, uh, will thrive and grow which otherwise might have remained much smaller, while other types of businesses that may have arisen in the free market will never appear or will be squeezed out. On another level, since most government projects are large-scale projects, only larger companies, even within the same industry, will qualify to compete for those contracts. So this subsidizes big businesses and withholds opportunities from the little guy to which he may otherwise ha have had some access. And so government contracts tend to prosper not only certain businesses as opposed to others, but often certain big businesses as opposed to smaller. Now with the rise of such big parasites comes this great moral hazard in society, and that is the risk of a system of graft becoming self-perpetuating. When such a company grows largely due to infusions of tax money through the government contracts, then the only way it will be able to sustain its operations is through similar contracts in the future. In short, once created, monsters have big appetites. And more often than not, monsters don't sit and wait, but go hunting to find their own food. 
big government contracted businesses then have an incentive to promote projects, to suggest projects, to foster conditions in which new projects become necessary in the public interest, and possibly even instigate crises, all by which their companies may grab new contracts to feed the beast. Such moral hazard also breeds political problems. Large companies employ lots of people, and thus not providing the government contracts then means potentially laying off thousands of people. So now you have a graft problem supported by a political obstacle. And so large voting blocks grow dependent upon tax-funded projects and become special interest groups which sway elections. Murray Rothbard, the economist, relates some of the many ways that government market interventions have affected our society. Quote, Urban planning has controlled and regulated the cities. Zoning laws have ringed housing and land use with innumerable restrictions. Property taxes have crippled urban development and forced abandonment of houses. Building codes have restricted housing construction and made it more costly. Urban renewal has provided massive subsidies to real estate developers, forced the bulldozing of apartments and rental stores, lowered the supply of housing, and intensified racial discrimination. Extensive government loans have generated overbuilding in the suburbs. Rent controls have created apartment shortages and reduced the supply of residential housing. All of these represent destructions of liberty and property. And all of this starts with one initial act of violence, and that is coercive taxation on the part of the civil government. As they say, violence begets violence. Now, all of this is to say, uh, not only is government manipulation of markets unbiblical in principle, but it also has these adverse pragmatic effects as the principle of entitlement through violence becomes the norm for society. So, how have free markets thrived historically in America? Well, much like we've discussed in ta the topics of taxation and money, America has never truly had free markets, at least not across the board. Now, of course, since both taxation and money and banking lie at the heart of commerce, any lack of integrity in those areas, which we've already discussed, is going to reflect in direct proportion to the lack of freedom in markets as well. But just as we saw in those areas, markets have at least been much freer in many ways than they are today. Perhaps the best single study of business development and entrepreneurship in American history is John Chamberlain's wonderful book, The Enterprising Americans. Chamberlain takes the story from colonial times up through World War II and then a little bit past, and he wrote specifically to fill a void in American historiography, uh, his time anyway, to confront the old and more often than not false leftist character of American entrepreneurs as robber barons. Chamberlain instead provides uh, a more proper, properly uh, a history which would treat businesses as a creative force in society. Now, as we've discussed earlier, most of early America was settled as land grants from the crown. The governors and trustees of these grants then surveyed and allotted smaller grants to the local settlers who would cultivate the land, oftentimes using enticements of free land or property tax exemptions for several years to motivate these people to come and settle. There were also certainly more ambitious types with visions of town planning, leveraging port cities as centers of trade. Uh, merchant classes arose, as did other forms of middle class uh, achievers. In early America, two famous examples will serve us as good illustrations, uh, though it is admittedly warts and all. 
The classic self-made bootstrapper is Benjamin Franklin. One of 17 children born to a Puritan immigrant family, Franklin started with next to nothing, built himself into perhaps the most famous man in the Western world before the Revolution. He started with just an apprenticeship in his brother's printing business. He went through several rocky uh, failures himself, ended with his own printing business, as well as all of his scientific achievements and inventions and things of that sort, not to mention his political works. And yet what is commonly not stressed is that Franklin never missed an opportunity to leverage government power to tilt the markets in his favor. His business's first major achievement was publicly to shame the existing public printer in Philadelphia and swipe away his contracts. And then he entered the political arena for his own benefit. He published a tract on what was then the hot issue of inflation of paper money in Pennsylvania. That tract was instrumental in getting the measure through the assembly. And then, of course, not ironically, the contract to print that new paper money was immediately given to Franklin's company. Franklin called it, quote, a very profitable job and a great help to me. Now, Franklin and government power are rarely seen apart for the rest of his life. Now, on the other hand, is the early life of our second example, the later arch-nationalist and nemesis from earlier uh, talks that we've given, and that's Alexander Hamilton. As we've mentioned before, he was an illegitimate child who was subsequently orphaned by age 12. Whereas Franklin at least had sound, if meager, beginnings, the odds were totally stacked against Hamilton. Like Franklin, he was largely self-educated through voracious reading, gifted with this enormous intellect, of course. Uh, he was surely destined for greatness in the merchant classes, but as we saw, he grew bored with that, grew bored with accounting. Uh, having read the classics, he had this lust for military fame, and he got the whole classic shebang, including a personal ending straight out of a Greek tragedy. Now, in both of these figures, we see the ability to start with nothing and work one's way to success, and that's the classic American dream. In the case of each, ambition and lust for fame drove them to chase state power for themselves and their agendas. And yet, in regard to the original achievement of success in the marketplace, Neither man needed nor profited from the intervention of the state before they achieved initial success. And that's especially true for Hamilton, who could have used a state-run welfare system at the time as an orphan, but instead profited greatly by the private charity of the merchants who took him in without having to do so. Throughout American history, you're going to find essentially three attitudes towards the marketplace. There are actually only two, but one side breaks into two more. You have non-interventionists, and then you have two varieties of interventionists, which today we call the left and the right. Chamberlain captures the image of the early self-sufficient non-interventionist types of American lore. Quote, the mystery and miracle of early America is that people went to places before there was any way to get there and took care of their transportation and marketing needs afterward. They followed Boone's old trace to the Cumberland Gap, and moved by Indian trails to the open streets uh, trampled by the buffalo. They clawed their way over the Alleghenies, followed the ridges above the tributaries of the Susquehanna and the Monongahela. And when they couldn't find a way of getting their corn or wheat to market because of its bulk, they distilled it into whiskey and shipped it back to civilization by pack horse. Pioneers settled in Marietta and Cincinnati, once called Columbia, on the Ohio River somehow and once in the West and presumably cut off from their old homes, 
They made seagoing ships that actually sailed all the way back to the Atlantic by way of the Ohio and the Mississippi and the Gulf of Mexico. In less exalted fashion, they used crude flatboats to get their produce to New Orleans, returning overland by the Natchez Trace, a devious wilderness road where they risked losing their profits uh, to new breed of land pirate that infested the gloomy woods and the cane breaks. Uh, the other two groups we've already essentially discussed, their descendants became uh, what we today call the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians. In promise, they each offer only relative improvements upon the other, and in practice, both resorted to centralization and leveraging of government power to subsidize favored industries, to impose tariffs and taxes and deficit spending. Neither side, despite any lip service to liberty or free trade, stood on principle in the area of free markets. Nevertheless, two great successes for market freedom occurred in that founding era. The first came from the Constitution, and the other came with the rise of industry. First, the Constitution created the largest free trade zone in the world. And this is perhaps the most important advance in the Western world next to the optimistic Christian worldview which made it possible. By unifying interstate commerce and eliminating potential trade wars and turf wars between the states, the Constitution achieved that goal. This was a consequence of the Constitution, however, we should note that it certainly would not have required the imposition of the whole constitutional settlement to bring it to pass. And in fact, we can see how that whole fabric was actually abetted, has actually abetted the gradual centralization of commerce that has occurred ever since. An early attempt at solving some of these issues more locally could have been the successful model that became uh, for the later documents. In 1785, the Mount Vernon Compact was an agreement reached between a few representatives of Maryland and Virginia at a meeting at George Washington's house. It was essentially a free trade agreement between the states. They agreed to share the waters of the Chesapeake Bay and the Potomac and the Pocomoke Rivers. It uh, could not have been a legal treaty, of course, since the Articles forbid that without approval by Congress. But the proposal and the agreement were certainly the model for success. Uh, but instead of pursuing that route, which would have remained uncoupled with a greater political centralization, the gentlemen involved decided to have a bigger, better version of the same conference, including all the states. This occurred the following year at Annapolis. It was largely a failure due to the attendance uh, from few, few of the states. And so a bigger, better conference yet was pushed for by this small group of men and eventually achieved with the Philadelphia Convention in 1787. But by this point, the nationalist coup was in tight control of the system. And out of it came the Constitution and the system we have today, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next section. Uh, the second major event was the Industrial Revolution. Vast increases in technology, manufacturing, transportation, uh, and communications, all within a very short time totally transformed production, lowered prices on consumer goods, uh, increased standards of living for everyone, just about. Again, Chamberlain provides a great example in this one vignette. The year is 1803, and Terry, the teacher of a long line of Yankee clockmakers, is already making clocks in his Naugatuck Valley, Connecticut, a factory uh, for which he has no storage space. Four clocks are ready for sale. Terry has to tear himself away from his mill, load the clocks into saddlebags, and take off over the hills toward York State, walking beside his horse because the load is too heavy to permit a passenger. The clocks are offered at $25 each on an installment plan. When cash is entirely lacking, they are, quote, sold 
for cornmeal, beeswax, sailcloth, woven cloth, commodities that can be bartered on the way home or passed on to workmen in lieu of cash wages. Four years later, Terry has a bigger mill and has adopted the full Eli Whitney technique of punching out standardized interchangeable wheels and clock faces. He's now prepared to sell a clock for $5. So thus in the mere four years did production techniques drop his production price by 80%. And as soon as transportation caught up with the revolution, which was very quickly, uh, sales increased heavily to catch up. Now, of course, the process of developing these roads and canals that made this possible, as well as many other big ventures, was hardly left to free markets alone. In many, many cases, companies took loans and grants from the government, they secured monopolies, they, uh, they thus got profits based on government intervention. But even in an atmosphere of rigged markets, the free market was always close, ready and often successful with competition and alternatives. Chamberlain, again, relates uh, that this is the case throughout American history, quote, Monopolies, oil was the most notorious of them, waxed fat only to recede into the pack, sometimes pursued by antitrust laws as later arrivals came on the scene. Meanwhile, new products and processes continually rose to compete with the old. Aluminum, even when there was only one company in the field, had to fight it out with wood on one extreme, steel on the other. DuPont artificial fibers freed the textile business from dependence on cotton, silk, and wool. The railroads were controlled more effectively by competition from automobile and truck and airplane than they ever were by the ICC. From telephones to television, the electrical revolution leaped from dependence on wires to dependence on wavelengths in God's free ether. Came to the supermarkets and consumer credit, washing machines, home freezers, and the split-level ranch house, which never looked upon a longhorn steer. With successes such as these, both left and right interventionists have always been able to speak in favor of the free market, but it's always been largely, uh, largely an illusion on their part. Free markets persist in many ways not because of either major party, but mainly despite their various interventions. Now we can, however, say with confidence that free market uh, the free market has historically prevailed more here in America than anywhere else. Uh, this is what made her, has made her great, has made her wealthy, and this is what has created the lasting reputation of America as a land of opportunity. The idea has been trampled many times, but it does shine through the cracks of the government superstructure that has so often overshadowed our greatest resource, and that is the law of God, those commandments, the belief in protecting private property, liberty, and life. Now, as well, we can say with confidence that average Americans once understood this and sought to practice it, that is, private property and the enforcement of contracts, beginning with their own bare hands. And when allowed to remain free, free markets have indeed worked and worked well. It took the efforts of many centralizers to railroad America into economic tyranny. And we'll tell that story in the next section.